English Standard Bible, Hebrews chapter 8, this morning. It reads, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that, it, that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This morning I want to talk to you about a superior high priest for a superior covenant. We see this laid out for us in this passage of scripture here in Hebrews chapter 8. The very first verse of chapter 8 says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. The author is about to give the major thrust for everything that he had been writing up until this point. Martin Luther said this, It is due to the perversity of men that they seek peace first, and only then righteousness, and consequently they find no peace. The point, if you seek peace apart from the truth of the word of God, you will never find it. This is the oldest trick in the book by Satan, to get people to seek after happiness and peace apart from Christ. In fact, we would do well to ask, where do we turn when we find ourselves in a desperate situation? What do you do when you need encouragement? Do you simply seek to better your circumstances? Do you tell yourself, well, things will surely get better. The author of Hebrews is saying to us that our hope is found not in better circumstances, but hope is found in Jesus Christ. Far too often we have churches preaching that you can find happiness and you can find peace and you can find hope apart from Christ. Churches steer clear of preaching theology because people don't care about theology. People just want to be happy. And so we're told if we preach theology, then our church won't grow and it will remain small because no one wants theology. They just want happiness. We can turn on the TV and we can see TV preachers with their nice smiles peeling or peddling their false gospel to people who eat it up every single day. This is the trick of Satan. Anything that he can do to diminish the supremacy of Jesus Christ is a win for him. And when you hear a message that's void of Christ, then that message is not of God. Furthermore, when a church focuses on following external superficial rules as opposed to following Christ, 
it detracts from the supremacy of Christ. How so? Because if Satan can fool us into thinking that we are good Christians because we are focused on following rules as opposed to being focused on Christ, he has distracted us from the supremacy of Christ and knowing Christ. Over and over again, the enemy attacks the supremacy of Christ and we fall for the tricks all too often. We look to worldly counsel for peace from our pain. We tune in to Dr. Phil or Oprah thinking that they have the answers for our problems. Or we turn to worldly pleasures that lure us away from Christ thinking the answers of our problems are found in money or maybe in our job or maybe some other means and we become satisfied with the pleasures of this world not realizing that the pleasures of the world are only fleeting. Only Christ can satisfy our deepest longing for all of eternity. This is the issue in the Hebrew church. They were tempted to abandon Christ, to return to Judaism. Judaism was the religion that their forefathers had practiced for generations. Why should they endure persecution for the faith in Christ? Why not just go back to the old way of doing things? And they would not have to worry about persecution. To get them to understand this mentality is wrong, the author has focused on the supremacy of Jesus Christ over the old way of doing things. In chapter 1, he revealed to them that the Old Testament was written all about Jesus. That Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament had pointed to. He then revealed the superiority of Jesus to the Levitical priesthood because Jesus was from the tribe of Melchizedek. And now he shows in chapter 8 that Jesus is a superior high priest for a superior covenant. Verses 1 through 6, we will see that the author shows that Jesus is a superior high priest. In verses 6 through 13, we will see that Jesus mediates a superior covenant. First, Jesus is a superior high priest. The author starts off with, as I alluded to earlier, now the point in what we are saying is this. In other words, he's saying, here's the point of the previous seven chapters. In fact, for the last seven chapters, the author has established our need for a high priest. And how Jesus is the only one qualified to be that perfect high priest. Jesus is perfect, completely faithful and true to God in Hebrews chapter 2, in Hebrews chapter 3, and in Hebrews chapter 5, and in Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus is merciful and became the sacrifice for man's sins. He was the sacrificial lamb of God for man in Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus lived as a man and underwent all the trials and the temptations of man and conquered them all without ever sinning. In other words, Jesus was sinless. Hebrews chapter 2, in Hebrews chapter 4, and in Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus actually felt man's infirmities and had compassion for man. He showed mercy and provided help to man. Hebrews chapter 2. And in Hebrews chapter 4, he was appointed and ordained by God to be the high priest in heaven. Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 7. He was the perfect author of eternal salvation. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. He was the priest who was after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of the earthly priest. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 6, verse 20. Chapter 7, verse 11. Chapter 7, verse 21. He is eternal. That is, he has an endless life. Chapter 7, verse 16. Chapter 7, verse 17. Chapter 7, verse 24. Chapter 7, verse 28. He lives forever to make intercession for those who come to God by Him. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He is exalted to the right hand of God, exalted higher than the heavens. Chapter 7, verse 26. Chapter 8, verse 1. The point of all that, the point of the seven chapters, was to show our need for Jesus, the superior high priest, that no one else is qualified. Only Jesus is qualified. 
And now he says, we have exactly what we need. We have such a high priest. Here's what you need. Jesus is the high priest. We have what we need. And this is broken down into three parts for us. First, Jesus is superior in his exaltation being seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is superior in his exaltation being seated at the right hand of God. The author is saying our high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This is a contrast to the Levitical priest who he said in verse 28 of chapter 7 were weak and imperfect. The Levitical priests served in an earthly tabernacle. They became priests because they were born into the tribe of Levi and they fulfilled their role generation after generation after generation. It is not so with Jesus. Jesus has taken his royal place at heaven's throne. Jesus is exalted into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. The Levitical priest always stood when they were in the temple. There were no, there was no place for them to sit. There were no seats. So they were never invited to sit down because their work was never done. However, it says that Jesus is seated, symbolizing his work is complete. His sacrifice was sufficient to reconcile sinful man to holy God. And it's not an ongoing sacrifice. His atonement actually accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish. And taking away our sin forever. He cried out from the cross, It is finished. In the Greek, one word, tetelestai. Because he brought finite man and infinite God together. He was able to do what no one else could do, which was bear all of the sins in one single sacrifice. This is why we read in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. To try to add our human works to what Christ has accomplished on the cross is to make a mockery of the death of Jesus Christ as our perfect sacrifice. It was perfect. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne, which is a place of honor and exaltation. But not only is he seated at the right hand, but he is seated in heaven. This is the dwelling place of God. He's not like those other high priests who could only enter into the Holy of Holies once every year. Jesus is in heaven in the very presence of God for us. He is our forerunner since we are in him. We are seated with him. In fact, Hebrews or Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 tells us that that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. He guarantees our place. He is in heaven and we can be confident of our salvation because we are in Christ who is seated in heaven. What a glorious truth. Christ is at work in us, causing us to be dead to the influence of sin because he is victorious over sin. In our Baptist catechism that I made available uh, downstairs, question number 25, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself and ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Jesus is superior in his exaltation being seated at the right hand of God, displaying his power in our hearts to rule over us, to shape and change us, and to protect us. Why should we fear? Christ is superior to all things. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high in heaven. Why in the world would we even consider anything else when our high priest is permanently seated and exalt in an exalted position guaranteeing our salvation secondly jesus is superior in his ministry 
serving in the true tabernacle. Jesus is superior in his ministry serving in the true tabernacle. Look at verse 2. Speaking of Jesus, it says, A minister in the holy place, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. This is very specific language that is being used. And the word tent can be translated tent or tabernacle. When the Israelites made their exodus from Egypt, they needed a place of meeting. And more specifically, they needed a place that they, where they could meet with God. They did not build a temple because they were not yet in Jerusalem. And so they used a tent. Now Hebrews tells us that Christ fulfills his ministry in the tent that the Lord set up. It's not a tent on earth, but it is a tent in heaven. Listen, the tabernacle on earth was a real thing. That people really went into the tabernacle on earth to go and meet with God, but it is not where salvation was accomplished. Rather, true and final salvation takes place in the true tabernacle in heaven, and man does not make it, but the Lord does. The point is that the earthly tabernacle was merely a shadow of the true tabernacle, which is what we see in verse 5. This is great because the Jewish community would say that Christians had no priest. They would say to, to the Christians, well, you don't even have a priest. But the writer of Hebrews is saying that this is not a sign of weakness, but this is a sign of superiority. Because Christianity's priest is Jesus Christ. And he still ministers actively as a priest. Now look at verse 3. It says that every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That was their purpose, to offer gifts and sacrifices on the behalf of others. That's what priests did. But what does Jesus offer? There was only one thing he had to offer himself. He is the only gift and sacrifice in the world that is perfect. Therefore, Christ offered himself as a perfect gift and as the perfect sacrifice. And he did it for us. This is a critical point. Jesus Christ offered himself as the gift and sacrifice for us. He gave himself for man. He gave himself as man's gifts and sacrifice to God. This is what makes the gospel so scandalous that the wrath of God the Father is ready to be poured out on sinful man, but Jesus, God the Son, takes the wrath of God on the cross for sinful man so that we would be saved. Now look at verse 4. If Jesus was a priest on earth, he could never be qualified. Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi, but he's from the tribe of Judah then he is not an earthly priest, and it follows that his priesthood is in heaven, not on earth. Now, please note that Jesus' work is complete on the cross. It's no longer before him. He has arrived at this point, uh, at his point of destination, and in heaven, he ministers for us. Let that sink in. In heaven, Jesus ministers for us until he comes again to bring History to a final close. Jesus is in heaven. This makes him superior. He's in the presence of God himself. Seated at the right hand of God the Father. And the goal of his superior ministry is to bring you and I to where he is. Near to God in heaven. And he will not fail. John 6, 37-40 tells us that. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me, who is the Father. And this is the will of him who sent me. So what is the Father's will? That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He will lose none. He's ministering on our behalf, and his goal is that you and I will be with him. Now, I want to say one last thing before we move on. In verse 5, it speaks of Moses preparing to erect the tent and God giving instructions that he do it in a 
specific pattern that God had given. And I believe there's some practical application in this for us today. And that's this. As Christians, our worship matters. You say, what do you mean by that? This is what I mean. That as a Christian, when we worship God, whether it be through music, through prayer, through giving, through the proclamation of His Word, whatever it might be, we should be seeking the revealed will of God in His Word and bringing our worship practice in line with God's Word. When we worship God, it should be in line with the Scripture. Moses was a wise person. But when it came to spiritual acts, God gave precise instructions. Why would God give precise instructions? Because it mattered. He was told by God exactly how to make the tent. And I believe that's applicable to us today. How so? I believe the majority of professing Christians today Can I just be blunt with you? Can I just be real for a minute? I believe the majority of professing Christians today don't give a rip about how God wants to be worshipped. They don't care. You know what they care about? How they want to worship God. Not how God wants to be worshipped. You know why churches have worship wars? Because people care about how they want to worship. Not about how God wants to be worshipped. And so we get all excited and all bent out of shape. Well, I don't like that song. I don't like this. And I don't like... Really? If our focus is how God wants to be worshipped, we don't have that problem. But it's when we take the focus on how God wants to be worshipped and we focus on how we want to worship God. So we use our own wisdom and we use our own fleshly lust and we use our own desires and we use what makes us feel good and we neglect what the Scripture says. When we're singing, which is a form of worship, we should be asking, do these words convey biblical truth? That should be the question. Is the words that's coming out of my mouth convey biblical truth that is based in Scripture. And if it doesn't convey biblical truth that is based in Scripture, I don't care whether it's a hymn or a song that was written a month ago. If it doesn't convey biblical truth that's based in Scripture, we have no business singing it. Because that's not worship to God. That's not how He wants to be worshipped. You know how I know that? Because Jesus said uh, that the Father is seeking those that will worship in what? Spirit and truth. And so if it doesn't say, um, if this is not proclaiming spiritual truth, then I shouldn't be singing it. Plain and simple. And it doesn't matter when that song went. I don't care if it's drums and harmonicas and what. what it doesn't matter. It needs to convey spiritual truth. Or we should not be singing it. And it's the same with everything. When we're giving, we should be asking, why am I giving this? What specifically am I hoping to accomplish through my giving? Through any gifts that I'm giving? Am I giving it sacrificially? Am I, am I truly giving sacrificially? You say, well, what does that mean? What does sacrificial giving mean? Have you ever given till it hurts? Have you ever given thinking, I don't know about this. You know, last week I had a issue with my car. And, uh, it's like $700 to, to fix my car. And it would have been real easy to say, well, we can take that money, we'll take our tithe. 
take some money out of tithe and fix that car. And uh, before I came to church on Sunday, I asked my wife, I said, how much money do we have in the automobile budget? Because I try to budget money, believe it or not. And uh, she says, uh, I think it was like $390 or something like that. I was like, oh, okay. And I made the appointment and put the car in that I didn't know how I was going to pay for it. And, you know, last Sunday somebody put some money in an envelope and gave it to me. And uh, it was the exact amount with my car. I had $5 left over. So I had left, five bucks. Do you give sacrificially? You say, boy, I could use this for something else, but I'm just going to give. Do you pray totally depending on God? Or are you asking for things that God wants or asking for things you want? But you know what? The opposite is true sometimes as well. I need to hurry up and spend too much time here. But when we worship, we fall into the trap of just doing the same thing over and over again. So we mechanically follow the tradition of those that have gone before us or whatever is the popular custom of the day. And I'm convinced that there are times that our worship grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit. Some people say, well, why don't we see the Spirit move in churches today? Because we're too busy grieving and quenching the Spirit. Because we are giving a mere external display of the worldly inventions of carnal men and saying, well, how does this worship please me? And not how does it please God? And Christ isn't even a part of our worship anymore. It would be far better not to worship God at all than to make a mockery of worshiping Him in accordance with our own human will. Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, they have indeed in an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, here is the problem. This mockery of worship goes on in many so-called churches, and in reality, we're not worshiping God on His terms, but we're worshiping God on our terms. And the result of worshiping God on our terms, you know what the result is? It is self-worship, not God-worship. When you worship God on your terms, you're worshiping self. Because you are elevating yourself over and above God. Okay, let's move on. Jesus is superior in his exaltation, being seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is superior in his ministry, serving in the true tabernacle. Jesus obtained a more excellent ministry. As we look at verse 6, we have a mark of time. It says right at the beginning of verse 6, the author says this, But now, it is a point of contrast. He's saying, this is what, we, this is what used to happen, but now something else is taking place. And in this case, it's a point of contrast from an old way of ministry to a new way of ministry. The, the Old Testament priests had a ministry. In fact, we could probably imagine what it was like to, to see the priest enter, uh, put on their priestly garments and, and following all the rituals of the tabernacle. And every year the priest would disappear behind the curtain as the people would wonder, is he going to reappear again? Because they didn't know. Because if he did something wrong, God would strike him dead. They didn't know what it was like in the Holy of Holies. They couldn't enter the Holy of Holies. And so year after year, their imaginations would just wonder what it was like in there. And what was a priest, what exactly was a priest doing? Will he make it out alive? And then he would reappear and they would sigh a sigh of relief and go through the same process next year and the next year and the next year and the next year. The author is saying that this is the old way of doing things and it may have been an excellent ministry for the priest, but Christ has a ministry and it's a more excellent one. The rituals that the priest went through on a yearly basis does not even compare to what our high priest went through when he offered himself once and for all on the cross of Calvary and is now serving in heaven on our behalf. His ministry is more excellent than their ministry. And the implication is, don't even think about turning back to Judaism because it's merely a shadow of Christ's more excellent ministry. Remember our 
Last point, Jesus is superior in his ministry serving in the true tabernacle. And now we see that Jesus has a more excellent ministry. And I think we need to just let that sink in. Perhaps we struggle with the thought that Jesus is in heaven on our behalf serving us. And we say, well, well, there's no way that Jesus is in heaven serving us on our behalf. And perhaps we're a bit like Peter when, when the Lord took the towel and began to wash the feet of his disciple. And Peter told Jesus that he was not going to allow him to wash his feet. Maybe that's us. Often we focus on how we should be serving Jesus, and certainly that's a good thing. Because we should be serving Jesus. But did you know that you should stop and pause and allow Jesus to serve you? Do you know that Jesus, do you know how Jesus responded when Peter told him that he would never allow him to wash his feet? Do you know how Jesus responded to that? Jesus serving Peter. So don't get this thought that Jesus doesn't serve. Jesus serving Peter. Peter says, you're never going to wash my feet, Lord. This is what Jesus says. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You say, well, I don't see Jesus showing up and offering to wash my feet. How am I supposed to allow Jesus to serve me? When was the last time you had real in-depth Bible study? I don't mean just just sitting here in church and listening to the sermon, which some of you probably do and don't do. But I mean, when was the last time you had real in-depth Bible study? I mean, coming for Sunday school and going deeper into God's Word. I mean, coming on a Wednesday evening when we have studies for men and women and youth. When was the last time you consistently showed up and allowed the Lord to serve you? Listen, you you are walking through this world every single day. And I hear this all the time. Well, I'm too busy to, to come. I'm, I got too much stuff going on. You're walking through this world every single day, picking up the dirt and the filth of this world. And you need to be washed off by His Word. And as our high priest, He ministers on our behalf, allowing His ministry to cleanse your soul. But I also want us to understand that the focus of what the author is saying is not the visible tabernacle. These verses are in fact the opposite. The focus is on what is spiritual. And even though the spiritual may not be visible, it is more real than the earthly tabernacle. Here's the deal. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around that because we believe if we can see it, then it's real, and if we can't see it, it's not real. That, that's why we have difficulty living for the spiritual and have great difficulty having eyes focused on the kingdom of God. However, the author makes it clear that the earthly tabernacle was not the real thing, but it was a shadow. The real tabernacle is in heaven, where Jesus is now. We are so prone to think that the earthly things are real. And we live for the things of the world. Don't we do that? And we think that heaven is less real. However, Paul tells us not to seek the things of this world in Colossians chapter 3. He says this, If then you be raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And boy, that's hard to do, isn't it? As believers, our focus should not primarily be on the things of this world, but on the things of God. These, the, the things of God come by faith in, in the truth of His Word. You see, while we are on this earth, we are constantly surrounded with and being bombarded by the things of this world. And unless you and I deliberately and consistently have a heavenly vision, then our priorities get all out of whack. And then we waste our whole life pursuing the things of the world which are only temporary and will not last forever and we miss out on what is eternal. Don't do that. You can be rich in this world and poor in relation to God. The earth we live on is only a shadow. Heaven is real. This is a shadow. 
Some of you are pushing a hundred. That's a long time on earth. It's a shadow. Heaven's forever. Jesus is a superior high priest in every way. Now let's see that Jesus mediates a superior covenant. Jesus is a superior, not only because he is superior priest, but because he is a superior priest of a superior covenant. The covenant he mediates is superior. We like to say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right? That's what we say. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, that is what the author is saying. God would not have announced the new covenant if the old one was working. And so since Jesus is the superior high priest who administers a superior covenant, it is enacted on better promises. The better promises of this better covenant are those that Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31, which we have a direct quote from, which was, and which ultimately was a direct quote from God. That prophecy came at a time when King Josiah reigned. And the law had been rediscovered, and there was a national repentance, and then there was a public covenant to keep the law, we, not, uh, which we know Israel again failed and failed and failed to do over and over again. And their failure to keep the covenant of God, and it's not a, a conditional covenant, but it's an unconditional covenant. And this covenant will not be dependent on man, but the new covenant is dependent on the work of God. Now, there is a lot that could be said about just these verses. In fact, there's whole theologies about these verses. And we can't get in, I can't get into all that. We'd be here till you know, next week. But I want to draw out some things about the covenant. First, the first covenant had its faults. The author makes it clear that if the first covenant was faultless, then there would be no need for a new covenant. That's what he says. Now remember previously, we said that the law was at the heart of their culture. It was the very foundation of how they lived and how they thought. It was everything that they did. Anything that was defective in the law of Moses was unthinkable. We, we saw that the author was saying in chapter 7 that if the priest required a change in the law, then it also required a change because, or if the priest required a change, then the law also required a change because they were linked together. And now he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31 to reveal that the Old Testament itself predicted that there would be a new covenant that would replace the old covenant. The reason the old covenant needed replacing was it had its faults. However, notice what the author says in verse 8. He quickly makes it clear that the fault was not with the law itself, but where was the fault? It was with the people. What was the problem? Well, it's a problem we have always had. Sin. We can't keep the law. The fault with the first covenant is that it was external and it offered no internal change. In other words, it gave a standard but gave no power to meet the standard. And so the law was made impotent because of the weakness of our flesh. It said, here's the standard, but you have no power to meet that standard. Everything was ceremonially external. The law could not truly deal with sin. You see, the law could, could not wash away sin. It couldn't justify us. It could not sanctify us. It couldn't save anyone. And the priesthood that administered it was not perfect either. Therefore, it had faults. Paul said the same thing when he said the law is holy, but later says that the law could not do. It was weak as it was through the flesh. As sinful, rebellious people, we're just unable to keep God's law. The law does not change our heart. The purpose of the law, as Paul says in Galatians, is to reveal our sin. And so that we would be driven to faith in Christ as our only remedy. You see, the, the law shows us that we're sinful. It says, hey, look, you're breaking the law. And it reveals to you that you're sinful. If you go flying down the road here at 50 miles an hour and, and the Washington police have their gun out there and they clock you, you're going to know you broke the law. Because they're going to pull you over and give you a ticket. And that's what the law serves. It says... I've done something wrong. Shows you you're sinful. The first covenant had its faults mainly that it revealed our sin. But it didn't remedy it. 
And secondly, we already touched on this, but the fault with the people made the better covenant necessary. So verse 8 says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now to be clear, there are some people who argue that the church is the new Israel. In other words, the church has replaced Israel in Scripture, and therefore the promises proclaimed to Israel are now the promises of the church. There are some people that believe that. They will say that since Jesus said uh, the communion cup um, is the new covenant of his blood, then the church replaces Israel as a recipient of the new covenant. My problem with that view is that it fails to take into account Romans chapter 11, which clearly states that unbelieving Israel was broken off, and so the Gentiles would be grafted in. By the way, there's no clear picture of adoption when you adopt a child than that right there, that we were grafted in, that we were adopted in as Gentiles into God's family. The original plan wasn't even part of us, but that's kind of weird. We could get into whole God's uh, predestination, all that, but we're not going to do that right now. But the original plan, it said that we came to the Jews first. We were adopted in. And when you adopt a child, what a picture of the gospel. Therefore, we who trust in Christ as Savior become partakers of the new covenant promise made to Israel. Paul goes on to say that after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, not only that, but we know that Christ went to the Jews first, and when he first sent his disciples, guess who it was to? To the Jews first. And when he commissioned the church, guess where the church began its commission? With Jerusalem. However, Israel rejected both the messenger and the message, and the gospel eventually spread from Jerusalem to, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the Gentiles. You and I. The point that Paul was making is that when the last Gentile is saved and Jesus comes in glory, then the new covenant promise will be applied to all of Israel. All who are in Christ share in the new covenant, which is purchased on the cross. Today, the blessings of the new covenant are applied to individuals. Listen, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, but its complete and final fulfillment awaits his second coming. While the blessing of the new covenant belongs to all those who believe in Jesus, but the promises are not fully realized, these blessings will be granted in full and be realized when Jesus returns to earth. Let's quickly look at some of the features of the new covenant. First, the new covenant is different than the old covenant. These are not in your notes. If you want to take side notes, you can. The new covenant is different than the old covenant. In verse 8 and 9, we see the new covenant will be a different. Uh, in fact, look at what verse 9 says. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. This is clearly a contrast of the old covenant with the new covenant. The emphasis is not on the continuity between the two, but the opposite, on the discontinuity between the two. The former was symbolic. The latter had substance. The one was administered under an imperfect priesthood. The latter under a perfect priesthood. The one had to do primarily with what was external. The other is mainly internal. The Mosaic Covenant was restricted to one nation. The Christian is international in its scope. Now, here's what we must understand. The New Covenant is completely of God's grace. And no sinner can ever become a part of the New Covenant apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, the new covenant promises inward change. Promises inward change. Verse 10 makes it clear. The problem with the old covenant, as I've stated numerous times, is that it was external. But the new one promises internal change. There will be written on the heart. Sinful people need a new heart. They need an entirely new disposition. And that is what the new covenant promises to give. When a sinner receives Christ as their Savior, they receive a divine nature. And that divine nature creates a divine desire to love and obey God. Our sinful nature is bent towards evil and only to please self. We live a life of disobedience by the nature that we have. But the new nature desires to please God and live for Him. Thirdly, the new covenant offers relationship between God and His people. Look at the latter part of verse 10. I will be their God and they will be my people. It's not a new promise. In fact, this was part of the Old Covenant. Exodus chapter 6 verse 7. And the Old Testament repeatedly echoes that phrase. However, it's a fulfillment through the blood of Jesus Christ where we become God's possession. And we possess God. 
God is our possession. He is our treasure. What we, what, what do we have in heaven? But God. He is our treasure. The wicked are living in this world without hope, but God is our reward. God is our stay. What a wonderful promise that He is our God and we are His people. We will act towards, uh, um, others in the character of God. He will be our comforter, our protector, our guide, our counselor. He will supply all our needs. He will never leave you, never forsake you. He is our God. Fourthly, all persons under the new covenant will know the Lord. Look at verse 11. It says, for they shall all know me. Under the old covenant, the nation corporately entered into the covenant. Many who did not even know God personally. Under the old covenant, you were dependent on a human priest and a mediator to stand before God. Not under the new covenant. You have direct access to God. We now enter into a relationship with God. Everyone who's placed their faith in Christ knows God. This is not saying that there's no need for teachers, but rather it's saying that the knowledge of God is no longer for a privileged few, but is available to all people. Fifthly, all persons under the new covenant experience complete forgiveness of sin. Look at verse 12. I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What? promise. The old covenant couldn't remove your sin. Under the old covenant, sin was never forgotten. It was simply covered up. A foreshadowing, yes, of the one that would come and remove the debt of sin forever. How does God forget? You ever wonder that? He is God. He never forgets anything. And this is the beauty of God. He cannot forget unless He wills to forget. And any sin that God does will to forget is forgotten. But any sin that God does not will to forget must be punished because God is holy. And so when it says God remembers our sin no more, it is only because by His grace He is determined to forgive us our sin. I love what F.F. F. Bruce says. This is not in spite of God's holiness, but in harmony with it. What a beautiful picture. God does not just forget our sins, but He wills it impossible to even remember our sins. Okay, so the superior covenant would not have been needed if the first covenant did not have its faults. And since God found fault with the people, He therefore promised a new covenant. And lastly and quickly, God's promise of the new covenant made the old covenant obsolete. Look at verse 13. The old covenant is old. The new covenant makes the old covenant outdated. Old and obsolete. What does obsolete mean? Out of use because of its age. It's ready to disappear. Jeremiah's prophecy, which was around 600 B.C., stated uh, started that clock to the countdown of the disappearance of the old covenant. I'm certain the Jews of the day when this was written were we're, we're saying, boy, look at those Christians. They sure are foolish, abandoning Judaism. At this time, the temple still stood. What the Jews failed to realize was that their religion, which they had based their entire life on, was about to fall. And fall it did in AD 70. The city of Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed by the Romans, and the Jews have not had a temple nor a priest to serve them ever since. The old covenant system with their priests and their sacrifice ceased to be offered. The perfect has come in Christ and the old has been made obsolete. Here's what I want to ask you this morning. We have seen that Jesus is a superior high priest. He's seated at the right hand of God serving and ministry and the mediator of the new covenant. He is supreme. But is he the supreme focus of your life? Is Jesus the supreme focus of your life? Are you really seeking to know him more? Or are you satisfied with doing what you're doing in church? Just, you know, coming, doing the Christian thing, 
Sometimes we even fail at that. What I'm asking you this morning is, do you really love Jesus? That's what I'm asking you. Do you really love Jesus? And is it evident in your life? Do you seek to glorify Him? I was looking in that video earlier and I noticed the banner said, For His Glory. Do you seek to glorify Him in all that you do? Do you really love Jesus? You don't do it out of duty, but you seek to glorify Him because you love Him. And He gave Himself for you. I'm not talking about some sort of external obedience or rituals, but obedience out of a heart that loves God. Christ said, if you love Me, you will obey My commands. Is He glorified in your life this morning in all that you do, in everything that's about you? Does it reflect the glory of Christ in your life? Do people see you as someone that desires to glorify God at work? Glorify God in your family. Glorify God in your church. Glorify God in everything that you do. Is it evident that you love Jesus Christ. We like to say, oh boy, the early church, if we could be like the early church. You know why the early church grew so much? Because they loved Jesus. And everybody knew it. You know why our church doesn't grow? Not our church just in general, but churches. Nobody knows we love Jesus. Oh yeah, we say we love Jesus. And we think the epitome of our love for Jesus is showing up on a Sunday morning. Is He glorified in your life? If you've not placed your faith in Christ, I challenge you to do so this morning. And if you have, I challenge you to glorify Him in every single area of your life. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Revelation 5, 11-13. Is He glorified in you today? We're going to pray. I'm going to give you a chance to respond. If you feel the need to respond this morning, I'll be standing down front. If you feel the need to pray in your pew, you can do that. Don't twist any arms here. I just want to give you the opportunity. Let's close a prayer.